We sat down to breakfast in the Corinthia, which Sia was excited about because that's where Oprah stays when she has major events in London. It's a very smart hotel in the Whitehall area of London, where obviously a lot of politicians do their business. But there are also a few people who come here just to experience the opulence of the interior of the Corinthia, which is always decorated with beautiful flowers. You actually walk through the florist on your way into the breakfast room. And there... Lo and behold, we got to meet none other than Paul Fonsale, who was the co-founder and chief creative officer of The Conduit, which is a new private members club dedicated to professionals living and involved in social impact and enterprise. He grew up in South Africa during the apartheid era, and I was keen to talk to him about all the work that he'd been involved in with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because, I mean, we talk about this stuff. Yeah. It, it, it's a very interesting story. I mean, your, your links with South Africa, Paul, yeah. are, are profound. You, yeah. you obviously were very involved in, in the early days of the anti-apartheid struggle. Yeah. I'd like to know how that happened. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know sort of what your family's involvement were too. And yeah. then we'll go on from that on to what you're doing with the conduit now. And we'll talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Awesome. Which is obviously yeah. an important part of that too. I'm a bit of a history fan, so if you can be as detailed as you like, I won't get bored. <laughs> Lovely. Cool. Great. Um, where do you want to start? Well, let's start with when, when you were in South Africa yeah. and kind of your family and your involvement in the, in the struggle and yeah. the rest of it. I mean, I'd say the... I was very fortunate. My parents, from as early as I can remember, I can remember sort of lying in bed at night listening to my mum and my dad having very long vociferous arguments with my grandparents and you know when your parents are in a heated altercation with their parents as a kid you sort of listen in and they were always arguing about politics and you know my grandfather was a united party guy so he was opposed to the Nats but you know being a united party person at that time uh, you know still meant that you were you know varying degrees of being supportive of apartheid and my parents sure, but were they, much, they were more progressive and they were a little more enlightened than Ex- the, exactly than the <laughs> exactly I and mean, for that time quite a lot quite a lot yes um but you know he still wasn't like ready to go one person one vote you know so and my parents were very much like this is ridiculous and so i think i, I grew up in a house where i you know i was told that apartheid was evil and immoral but it was always very much in the stricture of being a white South African growing up in a circumstance of my parents were both academics, so we just we lived in a you know nice house in Rosebank, and you know, and then when I got to Vitz, I, I, the, always the expectation was I would join the student movements, and I thought in my mind I was a prefect at school, and I was always like you know won the debating prize and blah blah. I thought I would be like you know I'd be in the student movement which would be like you know bit of an activist you know, well no I thought it was sort of like being in student government and giving a jolly good speech you know and then and then you know all the black students at Wits at the time you know this was 1987 right was day five entire black student movement were picked up under the emergency regulations detained without trial you know Stanza Bopapi was amongst that group who you know as you know was disappeared by the security forces and killed um, a bunch of the kids who I was, you know, just got to know were very badly tortured while they were in detention. David Webster was assassinated. Police were on campus. Um, and so it suddenly went from being the sort of theoretical thing that apartheid was bad to being like, okay, 
you know, this is what it really looks like and, and is. Did you feel at that point almost as if you couldn't avoid becoming involved because it was so close to home and all of these people were, were people that you'd actually encountered? I mean, it, it, brought it, it brought it into proximity like nothing else. Exactly, exactly. And it was, and it was you know, it, it, it took it away from being ac- academic to being intimate. Um, and so I then, you know, became very involved, ran for student government, was very, you know, got to know a bunch of my colleagues because at that point the student movement still organized separately. There was New SAS and Sansco. And, um, and then, you know, you just get, you get drawn deeper and deeper and deeper in, into the movement. So I started working on a campaign called Save the Patriots. And it was a strategy to get people, basically ANC cadres, who were facing the death penalty, to get them to have their sentences commissioned to life imprisonment. So on the theory that if you didn't, weren't executed, then when liberation came, you could be released. And the Dalmas 4 was a famous Dalmas trial. So I remember I went with a guy called Becky Melangeni, and Becky was a lawyer, Cheadle Thompson and Hasem. And we went to the Dalmas trial and it was the first time that the ANC in Contiwisis where guys appeared in court wearing military fatigues and uniforms and saying we're prisoners of war and hugely emotional incredibly important case and tons of pressure and in fact they were they were um, the sentences were commuted but Becky uh, was the kind of chief legal coordinator behind the campaign and the security forces were trying to kill Dirk Utsia yes. and they sent him these um, ex- uh, walkman with explosives in the ears and they were trying to kill Dirk Utsia, so they sent it to Lusaka and Dirk Utsia, right, being a hit squad guy, you know, you get yeah. a parcel that's marked to you that you don't know it's coming, you're like, don't touch that parcel um, but in order to fool Dirk Kutsia, that to put on the headphones, um, they said it was from Becky Mlangeni, which was his lawyer. Wow. So it went to Lusaka and then got returned because he didn't pick to it up. To Becky. To Becky. So then Becky picked it up at Cheadle's, took it home to his house in Soweto where he was living with his mum and his wife, went into the adjacent room, was a two, was like at a kitchen and a lounge, his study, and then two uh, bedrooms. He went into his study. He said, "Listen, I just got to like listen to something," and blew off his head. Um, and so at that point, I then started working. We founded a group called Kulamani, which is Speak Out, and it was a group of mothers and children whose parents had been assassinated or abducted. I'm great for the moment. Thanks very much. But. You guys order, please. Uh, sure, sure, but uh, carry on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, Kulamani? So, we formed that group and we started with like 10 of us and it became 2,000 of us. Um, yes, please, thank you. Um, that's a that's a groundswell, huh? Yeah, it was, a, and it just told you what was happening across the country that there were these tons of people who's, and uh, so we started working on that and as we were working on that, um, Mandela was released and it began to be clear that there would need to be a process right. to deal with all of this because you know, there you were so this, this is almost prep 
for, for the TRC. It, it was way. exactly the, the and, and, yeah. and this organization would have done a lot to engineer how that TRC might have ended up. Precisely. Right. So what we served was then Alex Borain started a not-for-profit that started looking globally at what the Chileans did, what the Argentinians did all over the world and we I worked with them and we held a bunch of conferences and meetings in which we looked at all the different models of how nations had dealt with the past and it was this really interesting sort of toggle of looking globally at what had happened and then coming back and sort of saying but you know let's check with our own victims movements mm. as to what they would find acceptable in the context of the negotiations which an amnesty was being pushed back and forth between the ANC and the government as a kind of precondition to getting the transition to happen. And so we were very actively involved in that process, in that negotiation, what it looked like, how it would work. Um, and I started then working with Dalla Omar, right. who was then uh, just a lawyer in private practice and the whole gang at the Legal Resources Center on a draft of the Truth Commission legislation. And, and then obviously Alex Borain went on to be the deputy head of the commission. Yeah. And we, we all know how that went. And, and what I'm interested in now is yeah. that although there's been quite a lot of really good documentation of what, what happened and what transpired, there were obviously people who didn't come forward. Right. There were obviously people who, who turned away the offer of amnesty and right. wouldn't tell their stories. Right. There's a, there was a lot of heartbreak. I mean, I remember yeah. as a, a kid, I was yeah. young, but I saw Desmond Tutu crying on TV and all these, these mothers and, and, and husbands and yeah. wives and you know relatives of people who just disappeared and never been accounted for. They didn't know where their bodies were or anything else. Yeah. Just sort of unburdening themselves of just miserable years of pain exactly and then of course there, there, there are those people now and this is really what I wanted to get to with you um, among other things on the TRC yeah. there are people now who are saying well the TRC wasn't enough yeah. and uh, they didn't go far enough and they didn't have enough um, power to execute some kind of, of punishment or right. some kind of retribution in the case right. of those who thought that maybe it was a little bit cosmetic, right? Um, which I think is very unfair, but how do you feel about it when you hear those criticisms, having I mean, I, been in the moment? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of things. One is, I think if you're a person whose wife, husband, child has been murdered or abducted or disappeared, you should never be placed in a position where if you say, I want full justice for that person and you don't get that full justice, it is a perfectly morally acceptable position to take and nobody should ever be in a position to say, well, you know, you're being unrealistic or, you know, that's, you know, you're asking for too much or national unity and reconciliation take precedent. Like, victims should always be able to have the space to say what they think is acceptable. And some victims say, I want an apology. Some people say, I want reparation. Some people say, I want full justice. Some people say, I want to murder the person with my own hands. You know, mm -hmm. I want to do the retribution myself. And victims, you know, if we all sat around the table and God forbid that were to ever happen to us, we would all, I suspect, have different things that would, we would require. So I always say, like, give people the space to have their own reaction because, you know, therefore the you know, grace of God go I, we're not in their shoes. You know? We spoke about the role the TRC played in helping people to heal. 
So when, when you were busy with, with the setting up of the, of the yeah. TRC, these conversations obviously took place and you had to decide how this would be interpreted one day when you can look at it with the benefit of hindsight. And, right. I mean, do you feel that there was more that could have been done? Because I think some of this criticism is unfair. Yeah. Um, at the time, what were the yeah. constraints from yeah. your point of view? Yeah. As you said, negotiated settlement. Yeah. You, so, so the, the, the bargain that was struck. Exactly. So the deal that was initially struck was, you know, a set of generals came to Mandela and basically said to him, in December, right? So this is December. We had our elections in April, right? The constitution was a, was already agreed. There'd been the Kempton Park negotiations, so, and yeah. it was it all happened, right? And they came to them and said, "We want an amnesty, and if you give us an amnesty, we will protect and safeguard the elections. But if you don't give us an amnesty, who knows? All bets are off, right?" And Mandela turned around and said, "You know, okay," but he was very smart. He basically said. You can have the amnesty, but the amnesty will only be granted once we take power. So you have to show us that you'll protect the transition. And there have to be a set of conditions that only we can forgive you because you can't forgive yourself. So they structured the amnesty in a smart way. And then what we came in and did was give that amnesty a set of conditions, right? So when they agreed that, the generals thought that they just got themselves an amnesty, right? Free pass. Free pass. And we came and said, I don't know, you got yourself an amnesty. We want the absolute new government, truth. But they didn't think that they would have to disclose the truth. Uh, is that why people like Magnus Milan never did? So Magnus Milan never did because he was prosecuted beforehand. If you remember, there was a trial and he was acquitted. And that trial was run by a KwaZulu-Natal attorney general called Tim McNally. And Tim... there was a deep discussion as to whether he really prosecuted that case with as much rigor as he could have put it that way yeah. and there at least some people argued that he deliberately threw the case so that Milan would be acquitted and Milan and co then said well why would I apply for amnesty we just all got acquitted so we're safe whereas the police all applied for amnesty because Eugene de Kock had been prosecuted right and Eugene successfully de... exactly so the police all thought oh dear, we're in for the high jump because one of ours just went down, right? And the military all didn't apply for amnesty. We continued to talk about the legacy of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, who were the big fish? Because, I mean, you must have had a list of people who yeah. you needed answers from. Mm. And, I mean, I've mentioned Magnus Malone, yeah. but there yeah. must have been others who you thought, obviously, Pierre Viaboetana, yeah, yeah, yeah. who never also yeah. pitched up and yeah. was arrogant enough to just spurn yeah. the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. somehow got away with it under the protectio of being a former state president. Right, right. But who else were the people who you wanted to hear from So that you never did? The dynamic, the way the dynamic happened was that once the people around, we made it clear to the people around Eugene de Kock that we had all the evidence on them. And so when we had all the evidence around them, they all started applying for amnesty. And once they started applying for amnesty, everybody else around them started applying because it was a domino effect, right? You disclose the full truth about what you did and you say, well, I was in a hit squad, there were four people, then the other three in that hit squad have to start disclosing. And once you're in a hit squad, you haven't just killed one person, oh, you yeah. kill many. So they start disclosing all the crimes. And then when they disclose all the crimes, we would say to them, well, where did you get the orders? They would say, well, I got it from the regional right. guy. And then the regional guy would have to apply for amnesty. And the regional guy would say, well, I got it from, you know, Up police high. headquarters. And police headquarters, oh, actually, I got it from Johan Kutsia, 
and you know Van der Merwe, the two successive commissioners of police, both of whom were previously headed security police. And, and didn't then, didn't the cock kind of become a bit of a um, scapegoat. Yeah, a yeah. lightning rod for all of this because they found, well, he's already been found guilty, yeah. so we'll just trace it all back to him. That's what he complained about bitterly well, afterwards. Yes, he did, but the trick was that because he had been prosecuted, we got all the info on everyone else, so it was, it was impossible to say. De Klerk came before the Truth Commission and said, these are just bad apples. Oh, yeah. And we were like, no, 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 no. Bad apples says that there's a small group of people who are just doing this as rogues. Well, Let's look at the State Security Council National Security Strategy, which says identify and eliminate enemy activists. You were in the State Security Council when you approved that document. What did you think it meant? Now, before you answer that question, I'll tell you what Johan van der Merwe thought it, thought it meant, because he was Commissioner of Police at the time, and he thought it meant kill. Right. And not only did he think it meant kill, he actually ordered people to be killed, and they were killed. So, so... I think what happened was the nature of the TRC process went from individual crimes all the way up to the policy. And then we said, they said, oh, the clerk said, well, you know, it was never our policy for anybody to be tortured. And we're like, that's very interesting because we have, What's this evidence we have 20,000 people over a five-year period held in detention without trial who all report being tortured. So either it's some gigantic, that's a lot of bad apples. Mm-hmm. and. Gee whiz, those bad apples are evenly distributed across the country. And it happened where every time somebody was taken into detention. So that's a really strange thing, right? How do you think it happened? And by the way, it was on the front page of every newspaper that was reporting that people were being tortured. What steps did you take to ensure that nobody was tortured? How many policemen were prosecuted for torture? How many investigations were they for torture? Zero, 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 zero. So this is not just some bad apple. This is a systemic policy. And so we were able to write in our final report that this was a systemic policy. And for you, was it very difficult and emotional because you, you, you knew the people and you met the people and you had to facilitate some of these conversations that were so difficult? Yes. Um, I mean, did it, yeah. Was it emotionally draining on you? It was emotionally draining for everybody who works on the commission. I mean, a, a group of commissioners, like five commissioners, got cancer during the, the life of the commission. So that's interesting statistically, right? Stress. It's stress. You, I mean, you literally, my metaphor is you're taking the poison of the, of the past and you're absorbing it. Um, and a lot of people in the commission, we had a full-time set of psychologists who worked not... We had a full-time set of psychologists, a large number who worked with victims who were testifying. But we also had a team who did internal care because when you're exposed to that... Day after day after day, people started really... Anki Croft, very famously in her book, Country of My Skull, mm-hmm. you know, said her hair started falling out, her, t- you know, her teeth fell out, you know, she were, and she was documenting the crimes of you know, the Truth Commission every single day for, the, for SABC. So it was, yeah, it was stressful. Nothing Absolutely. close to what the... The actual victims, victims, of course, but, of course, but, not even in the same paradigm, but it was a stressful process. Yeah. And and did you, after all of that, just want to get away? I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that I think would put many people off of a, a, a nation state, a collective of individuals who had bad intentions, a, a system of oppression, a, 
system that came in afterwards that yeah. attempted to fix some of that yeah. succeeded in some ways yeah. and failed in others. Yeah. I was, um, yeah, I got a scholarship to study law at NYU and it was this kind of weird year because I left, I was the main witness in the trial against P.W. Werther. So I did that trial for a week and then I got on an airplane on a Saturday, I arrived in New York on a Sunday and you know started studying on a Monday so it was a very uh, weird weird experience to, to go from what was that. it like being the main witness in the PW Boerter trial it was funny because you know um, it was in George yeah. and all you know he arrived and the, all the generals uh, from the old order all arrived in full uniform to sit in the front row of the court to kind of like you know make this you know statement and you know the, the courtroom was packed it was those dudes and then basically local activists from the townships who were in the court as well and P.W. Boyce walked into the court as a witness as a, as a pros- being prosecutor he was in the dock right and um as he walked in, everybody stood up, including all the activists. And so it tells you something about the about authority and the condescension. The he, he, he was, you know, he had been out of office by that stage for God, that's weird. Eight years, and he was this doddering old man, right? But still, everybody like stood up. So it initially it was intimidating, but what was good about it was it was for me very cathartic because I was going to lead the questioning of him had he appeared before the commission and he refused to appear and then he his defense was we had no legitimate questions to ask him we were just trying to humiliate him so when he was being prosecuted for defying the truth commission part of our defense to our rebuttal to his defense was well here are all the questions we would have asked you had you arrived now, his most massive miscalculation, had he arrived, I had a group, a list of 100 questions. He probably would have got tired after two or three hours and would have asked for an adjournment. The archbishop would have definitely given him an adjournment. And I would have got through eight of my questions. And then it would have been all over. And then P.W. Boyce would have appeared and we would have had the symbolics of it, but we wouldn't have been able to go back and forth. No. This way around... I got to stand in the court for two solid days and go through in minute detail every question we would have asked him, plus all the ancillary evidence. So basically, I could set out the case against him while he was sitting in the dark without him answering, because all I was doing is saying, these are the questions I would have asked had he arrived. So it was this very beautiful experience that he actually, by defying us, got it much worse, because I could very systematically build a case against him. And then that got reported front page of the New York Times, everywhere around the world was being reported. So it was, and it was good because as a, you know, fun sale, I'm, you know, so it was hard to make the case that this was a bunch of like black South Africans victimizing him. It was me, you know, and yeah. it was just very casually. Although there are critics of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in hindsight, it wasn't a perfect exercise and Paul admits as much welcomed right they were like 
that is exactly right. That you know, we're going to set the new moral standard. You set the new standard. You you know you, you tell the right story. You place who were the victims and who were the villains in history. But you also say at some point the victims didn't live up to their own standards, and when they don't, because we're talking about not just looking back, we're looking back, talking about looking forward. It's vitally important that we set those standards and we're clear that just because you're fighting for liberation doesn't give you carte blanche to do whatever you want, right? That splits the movement a little bit down because there was a category of people like Mandela and like Cyril who were like, yeah, that's of course right. And then there were a category of people like Tabo and Becky who were like, you're tarring the liberation movement and you're cr- and we and, and, and obviously people yeah. on that side who had been involved in their own kinds of ugliness and atrocities precisely and, so, and who were not really keen to be tarred with the same brush as the nationalists and that was why Tutu remains I think one of the most heroic figures of our time because he it was clear who he was and how he saw the conflict and the struggle but he was not going to you know brush under the carpet some of the abuses on the other side and that made him very unpopular with a certain category of people in the movement and i and i'm afraid to say one of the leading indicators of whether you were going to be a rule of law oriented uh, uh, uncorrupt custodian of the future uh, or whether you were going to be somebody who just said you know we represent the people and therefore give us a free pass and don't scrutinize us and let us just get on with it one of the early indicators was their willingness to precisely right precisely and and it was very clear that was very very clear when we were and was very clear in the commission who who were the people who were going to be standing up to tell the truth without fear or favor and who were the people who were going to be trying to uh, shade things. Were there any situations stuck in your mind that were handled especially well or especially badly? Especially, again, with the benefit of hindsight. And I don't expect you to unbundle all of your memory now and try to search through because there must have been a few that you thought could have been directed better. Yeah. If any that immediately spring to mind, perhaps people that you've met subsequently, yeah. new information, things yeah. like that. You know, I think it's um, it is remarkable when you are the you know national newsmaker of the year for three years in a row, which the Truth Commission was, when we had higher audience ratings than the soccer. Right. Um, when you know Max Dupree's weekly digest on the commission was like much wa- must watch TV, right? And where we were subject to, I mean, it was carried live, and then you know every day there was a new headline in the front page of the newspapers. The contours of the final report, more than twenty years on have not been rebutted. There's been no, there's been no case of saying we got something fundamentally wrong. Which That's incredible. When you take 24,000 statements, when you listen to everybody from across the political spectrum, when you're subject to that amount of legal scrutiny, that was, you know, that, that's a big deal, I think. Um, so, you know, 
there was obviously a lot of back and forth on how we engage with Winnie Mandela, you know, and some Especially people. Especially when, when she yeah. died, that must have come up again. Exactly. And there was, you know, some people were like, the Archbishop was too uh, soft on her, but, you know, his whole goal, and, you know, I think understanding Tutu is really important, as his theology is, if you come forward and you confess and you apologize and you acknowledge, then he's going to give you a lot of rope and space. Um, and he kind of coached, he, he sort of, that hearing for him was this exercise of getting her to fess up on Stompy and say that she was sorry. And she gave an apology that was, I think, a little conditional and it had to be extracted from her. And I think Tutu felt as though getting, extracting that apology was really important. Um, and he never, you know, conversely, I think, you know, de Klerk, you know, I think when history is told, de Klerk's ex, uh, role, his ability to play and be a national figure basically eroded after the Truth Commission because he didn't offer an account before the Truth Commission that was plausible, the kind of bad apple theory. And we knocked that down pretty hard. Yeah. And then, you know, during the life of the Truth Commission, he retired from politics. Right. And in his final press conference, he said, I have become too associated with the past. And he had become too associated with the past because he didn't, he didn't lay claim to the future. I mean, he, if he had said, of course we did it. And these are the things that we did. And I acknowledge it, and I'm sorry, but I did negotiate the transition, and I want to take the nation forward on the basis of a full acknowledgement. Tutu would have literally jumped over the, the desk, embraced him, and called him a, you know, a national hero. hero. Instead, what de Klerk did was say, oh, we never gave any orders of any kind of anything, which and, is just not plausible. You know? And it's so interesting that he was an opportunity yeah. where he wouldn't be subject to, to any kind of retribution yeah. and he didn't take the opportunity he didn't grab it with both hands it's so yeah. bizarre yeah um do, do you still speak to a lot of south africans in south africa do you still have a lot to do with what's going on now i still speak a lot um i'm watching what's happening right now with great interest mm -hmm. again um, you know the characters exactly I'm an unabashed fan of Cyril's, warts um, and all, but I, you know, I think uh, in the sweep of history, if you were to choose a person to govern at this moment, you probably, given the available cast of characters, we couldn't, we couldn't find somebody who's better placed. That's an interesting my, point of view. Um, um, and and uh, criticisms? You know, I mean, I, I guess the question is, is uh, what do we want? What do we want from a leader post Zuma? Mm -hmm. okay. Sorry, there we are. No worries. So, if you want somebody who's going to govern with, you know, an impeccable absence of corruption. And if you're going to want somebody who reconstructs the state and focuses on economic growth and helps to try and restore faith in the state, then 
who else we got? Yeah, um, really, as you say, best pick of the bunch. I mean, I because I think his work cut out for him. Oh my God! I mean, he's uh, yeah. And I think I would be a little more robust on the corruption stuff if I were him. Um, but I, I'm not. I don't. I don't know that he has the amount of leeway at the moment that he needs. So I think the thing about that is you. My theory about this is. Pretty quickly say goodbye. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about what you're doing with the conduit, what yeah. that is. Yeah. So the conduit is a, um, we have a 40,000 square foot building in the heart of Mayfair. Um, and it's a, it's a community of people who are passionate about positive social change. Okay. So it's basically one third uh, entrepreneurs and investors, one third creative, so film art, music, theater, television, literature, and then one-third positive social change. So not-for-profit social entrepreneurs, philanthropists, foundations. And it's a, we do about 150 talks a year on solutions. So we, we, have, we organize in sort of seven broad areas. So it's economic opportunity and job creation, climate and sustainability, health, wellness, nutrition, skills, learning, education, gender empowerment, etc. That's terrific. And then yeah. we present companies and enterprises that are actually working on it. So people who are taking plastics out of the ocean and turning them into bricks for affordable housing. People who are using new forms of apps to help people with depression or anxiety as a way of kind of providing them with constant feedback loops and ongoing forms of counseling. And every, you know, people who are using coffee machines on the back of Vespers in London employing homeless people employing 500 people and three and a half million pounds in top line revenue employ 500 homeless people you know mm. and it's a serves fantastic coffee and is a great little enterprise and is a for-profit endeavor um, it's ticking a lot of boxes exactly oh. so what we're doing is we're trying to find those things and um, find ways of supporting funding financing them right we have an impact fund that funds and supports the best ideas um, and then the, the building you know has a restaurant run by one of the youngest Brits ever to win a Michelin star the guy who's head of Condé Nast International and the Royal Household's Cuisine we have a speakeasy with a guy who ran Radio Nova which is the best radio station in Paris which has got this thing called Le Grand Mix which is music from the global <coughs> south the best in Ivorians and Malians and Fantastic. from Cuba and from the West Indies and so it's like a it's it, it has all the, the it's, a, it's a, 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 you know the rudiments of a club um, but it's really for uh, and we've got you know Christian Amanpour and Paul Polman, the global CEO of Unilever, and Alana Weston, the head of Selfridges, and Natalie Massonet, the head of Farfetch, and Jimmy Wales, who founded Wikipedia, and Salil Shetty, who's the head of Amnesty God. International, and Nicholas Zenstrom, who founded Skype. And you know, Unfortunately for many people, history is a dead thing. But to people like Paul Fonsale, history continues to be a living, breathing creature. And there are always new stories being added left, right and center to things that we think we already know. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission and immediately post-apartheid South Africa continue to be fascinating places that we need to mine in order to learn more about our own origin as a democratic country.